Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is Cog Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey guys, I'm doing a new program that I'm calling Wednesday Night Chats. This is a Facebook Live that'll be happening every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on my business page, which is on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash thecognitivecanine. I hope that you'll join me over there. We're going to be talking about basically all things what to do with dogs in a pandemic. How do we prepare our dogs for when our lives go back to normal? How do we socialize puppies right now? And... If we can't get out to do a decompression walk, what are we supposed to do? So join me over there. It's a free program, but I am accepting donations for it. All the details will be included each week. So that's facebook.com slash the cognitive canine Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. See you there. Guys, today I've got a very special guest. Dr. Karen Overall is a veterinary behaviorist, and her textbook, Manual of Clinical Behavioral Medicine for Dogs and Cats, is one of those books on my shelf that I pull down time and time again when I'm working on cases. And I wanted to bring her on the podcast to discuss her research in noise phobia in dogs, because as you guys know, I have border collies, so my motives were very selfish in nature. But also about my clientele because you guys have so many border collies um and of course border collies are not the only breed that's affected so welcome to the podcast karen thank you very very much it's a pleasure to be here and would you take a moment and just tell the listeners what your current projects are sure um i've recently taken in the past year taken um an academic position at Atlantic Veterinary College at the University of Prince Edward Island for for two reasons. One was that I wanted to live on the beach. Um, And this allows me to live on the beach in the North Atlantic, which is actually quite lovely because there are seals and whales. And the second reason was it dawned on me that we were not teaching veterinary behavioral medicine in veterinary schools. And this was a chance for me to once again do this to large numbers with large numbers of students, to or with, I think it's both in this case, (laughs) and and affect humane and positive change that way. Behavioral problems are still the number one problems that veterinarians are consulted about. And veterinarians, by and large, don't know anything about behavioral medicine. So this is you know, I've complained about it for years. This was a chance to step up and do it. And it's allowed me to continue with and expand some aspects of um, my research. And for the past few years, we've focused on um, a series of problem-solving studies um, that evaluated effects of anxiety and upbringing and rearing and source on dogs' performance across a battery of tests that 
cover all the cognitive domains, so how you learn or how you process information. And these tests really tell us how dogs use information and signals in their environment. And it sort of snowballed into something that was supposed to be a six-month study and ended up by being a two-and-a-half-year study. So we're still awash in data in that, but what it has given me is an entree into uh, two sets of things that we continue to be engaged in. One is that I am determined, and this is one of the reasons for being back at a vet school, that with help of some of my colleagues and interested students, we may be able to come up with a battery of simple tests that could be used even online to establish when normal behaviors begin to go awry and also to potentially help us establish developmental normals so that we know whether that Border Collie or that Australian Shepherd or that Pomeranian is on the same neurodevelopmental trajectory. And the reason I'm interested in that is that's where we first see anxiety and problems with noise arise. You know, you're interested in noises because you have Border Collies. I have Australian Shepherds, um, <laughs> you know. Um, we probably have cornered the world's supply of benzodiazepines for these guys, but yes, <laughs> you know, it's, um, these become big issues. And my, my second, my second reason for doing this is I would really like to get a good handle on how we can begin to get large scale answers in real time to quantifiable behavioral changes without me having to be in front of that person. I mean, these cognitive studies, don't get me wrong, um, no matter how exhausted we were at the end of every day, and both my assistant Jess and I were practically hallucinating at the end of every one of these days, we were so exhausted. And two and a half years is a long time to do this without a break. Um, but they were fantastic and they were fascinating and the clients were wonderful and the dogs were great. We tested over 150 dogs, some of them five and six times, separated by a couple of months. The data are fantastic, if overwhelming, and, um, and they'll be producing papers for years to come. But that's incredibly labor intensive for only, um, you know, a couple of hundred dogs. So one of right. the things that I thought that being back at a vet school could do is, you know, other minds, people to talk to, students who might help me test out a few things that could be done where we could perhaps um, start to look at um, ways to do this long distance and see how we could begin to sample and I think we can develop that and in a better way than a, than a survey online that uh, simply asks about a static moment in time. I mean, there are a lot of breeders of dogs out there. I can't believe that we couldn't get a large number of them to do a quick series of tests and repeatedly fill out uh, a really good validated uh, questionnaire that doesn't need to know anything about their opinions. I just need to know what the dog does in this circumstance that couldn't provide us 
with uh, some real keys to recognizing these problems early and how they develop. We can all recognize the border collie or the Australian shepherd that can't stop shaking and has his tongue out and is absolutely scarlet and dripping liquid and with pupils that are, you know, the size of saucers. How did you get And I still yeah. don't know the answer to that question. Well, I guess we'll end the interview there. No, uh, <laughs> your research sounds at so fan, so fascinating, so fantastic, and I'm so happy that you and your team are looking into these things. But let's zero in on noise phobia, noise reactivity. You know, there are a lot of labels for these things. Noise sensitivity sensitivity so so let's get some definitions what are we talking about yeah and and you know this got more complicated um when we ended up with some medications that are licensed specifically to treat these dogs who are afraid of noises because once the fda got involved and licensed cilio they decided to call it noise aversion a phrase that no one in the field had You know, and when I saw that, I thought, oh, God, please don't help any more than you absolutely positively have to. Because, you know, this certainly is more than an aversion. An aversion is, I really don't like it and I'll avoid it. Yeah. That's not this. They don't get the option of avoiding it. That's the whole problem. So people have said fear of noises, and everybody could get on board with that. The difference between a fear and a phobia is a phobia describes a pattern where it's almost an all or nothing phenomena that between the bouts, it's uh, absolutely repeatable. Um, It's the most extreme version of this. And we have all known dogs that are like this. We've all seen dogs that are like this. And the question there becomes, did that start out as a fear or is that different than a fear? And years ago, the person who, I don't even know the woman's name who started me on the path of really looking at this and being very careful with these terms, but I was giving a continuing education lecture to veterinarians at a big meeting, and somebody was sitting in the front row or the second row, I think, and said to me, raised her hand and said to me, I understand a phobia. What if it's less than that? What do we call that? And I realized we didn't have a name for that. You know, we were all talking about phobias, these profound, massive things. We knew nothing about whether or not they they evolved as a full-blown phenomena or they develop. Um, And I began to look in the literature and look in other places. And at that point, and you're still going to see it, we see a lot of people using noise sensitivity. Um, The problem with the phrase noise sensitivity is that if you talk to audiologists, and I collaborate with audiologists, they're like, Yeah, we don't know that. Noise sensitivity to us means that you hear a different range of sounds or you hear sounds at a lower level. You are acoustically more sensitive to Mm. a cutoff point. And in our study where we worked with these audiologists, we found that in fact wasn't true. That now we we only had mild to moderately affected dogs in that study, and we only had you know a few dozen dogs because this is outrageously expensive to do time and time again. But um, 
in that study, all except one dog, completely normal, normal range of hearing. Uh, everybody had a completely normal range. So once you've got that, you know, you've got to realize that sensitivity may be the wrong word because it implies something that we don't know. In human psychiatry, also, sensitivity is used differently. It's used to mean somebody who is responsive to a lot of stimuli, and in one form, one school in psychiatric thought, it doesn't factor into a diagnosis, it factors into a description. Um, individuals who are noise sensitive are thought to um, have a tendency to have um, loads of other environmental sensitivities. That, that's different than having comorbid diagnoses, and that may not be what we're talking about either. So I was looking for a neutral term that uh, wasn't already loaded, and we decided when we all decided to work together that we would call this, you know, I've been working with a, a couple of geneticists and a bunch of genetics people and the audiologist just decided that we would call this noise reactivity because mm -hmm. it, 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 there was no value loaded to that. Um, you know, be, the other thing is there are dogs who just react to noise and they're not upset. Yep. And those are the dogs that we need to know about also, and nobody cares about those dogs, but we need to know the proportion of those dogs because those are the dogs who are paying attention to noises, but not being distressed as opposed to the dogs that you and I have who pay attention to noises and are distressed. And they're that's fascinating. And that's a really interesting yeah, line yeah. to draw. And nobody's paying attention to that. So that's one of the reasons that we define it the way we do. And we um, also ask a series of questions in uh, a purely objective format. People are very good at putting percentages on their dogs. If I were to ask your audience, well, does your dog react to gunshots? And if it does, does it react, you know, 50% of the time, 75% of people will tell you. They might even tell you about the different guns if they are near a shooting club. Um, they'll tell you about the different types of storms. When you ask uh, what triggers your dog in a storm, you know, a lot of people in the Southwest of the United States will tell you ozone because it rolls over in the South. Mm -hmm. And if the dogs smell that, they know a storm's coming. So, you know, it very much depends on how you ask the questions, the quality of the data you get. So we've ended up with a series of uh, quite simple questions that have worked for genetic studies. Um, and they're not just in my hands, they've been used worldwide. They work for genetic studies, they work for phenotyping dogs, they work for, they work for all sorts of epidemiology. So they'll always give you a snapshot and an accurate snapshot of just how affected that dog is so that you can compare them to other dogs. And we've got a scoring system based on that that has, again, worked wonderfully for genetic studies. So, you know, these are the types of tools that are out there, although they're not broadly used and they need to be more broadly used. If we used those tools in a repeated measures way on puppies, and let's say that every three months of a puppy's life, we evaluated them 
um, through the first at least two years of their life using those tools and uh, maybe uh, a, a few short tests. We've got an attentional test that came out of the study that has been shockingly useful. You know, little small things that people could do at home and send you a 20 or 30 second video. Think of the type of data we could have in a in a true citizen science way that would also meet the highest standards of rigor of data collection. Well, it's very it's a very exciting prospect to me um, to gather more of that data so that we can potentially try to help these dogs and try to help them from a breeding standpoint rather than always trying always trying to come at it once it is an established problem. Well, that's it. And wouldn't it be lovely if we could say, okay, um, if you have these risk factors at six months of age, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to pretend this dog is going to develop the condition because nine out of 10 dogs will. I don't have the data to say that now. You know, the extent yeah. of my breeding advice right now, and I give a lot of breeding advice, is if you have noise reactivity or phobia on both the father's line and the mom's line, you have to expect that the chances that 50% or greater of those puppies are going to be affected in some way is great. But not all of those dogs are going to be affected the same way. And that was the result of our first study. And that's when I first realize that, uh-oh, the hypothesis that everybody has had, and it's in the literature for German Shepherds, that this is a, a simple dominant gene that's causing, that's causing these noise reactions because they run through family lines uninterrupted, at least half the dogs are affected. And then we began to look at the people and how affected their dogs were and how variable it was. And I suddenly realized, I mean, there was that epiphany where I suddenly realized, oh my God, I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> this isn't one gene and it's not simple. And I don't know if it's a penetrance problem. I don't know if it's an exposure problem. I don't think it's an exposure problem, by the way. I think that what it is, is we're looking at multiple gene combinations and the combinations don't all have the same effects. So I'm going to, I have, you know, a list of questions, but I'm very, very fascinated by you stating it's not an exposure problem because I've been arguing that in my career for a long time. A lot of breeders think that if you just make a lot of noise for the puppies, they will grow up and be fine. Yeah. And that has not been my experience because I buy my puppies from wonderful people who work very, very hard um, with the puppies. And I still wind up with a high rate of affected dogs in my life having this breed. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit. Okay. Well, if it was exposure, just, just work through this logically. You wouldn't have certain breeds like Border Collies that have such a whopping representation yeah. in the breed because they don't all live in the same exposure environment. So, you know, when you've got breeds that are differentially affected and you know those dogs live across environments it can't just be exposure early rearing not everybody on the planet is protecting their puppies and they shouldn't be protecting them anyway they just shouldn't be scaring them um but the other thing that would be helpful to know here 
is that a lot of militaries worldwide who have any kind of breeding program or puppy rearing program rear their dogs on Air Force bases. Mm-hmm. And they rear their dogs on Air Force bases historically because A, you're shipping dogs, and B, the idea was we'll expose them to the things that are most likely to distress them early. And let's face it, there's nothing like um, a modern Air Force jet landing in front of you. <laughs> Um, yep. And they still have problems with um, noise phobic dogs. So if that were a prophylactic, they would not have problems. Um, that's not to say that there aren't some exposure induced phobias. And I think that there may be time periods and thresholds where you could do harm. And and the example I'm going to use is one that people ask questions about all the time, and we lack good data for it. But this is a case where minimizing the cost of error becomes important. And the question is, should I ship my puppy in the cargo hold of a plane? Okay. Now, um, I have in my patient population a number of puppies who have been shipped um, at six to eight weeks of age, and we're not going to discuss why you shouldn't buy a dog at six weeks of age. <laughs> um, young puppies, and they get off the plane in their basket cases. Now, they are coming into see me. I don't see the ones that are moving. That said, in a study that was done in shipping research beagles in cargo holds of planes, they were far more reactive when they got off than when they got on. And you've got to believe that especially for some young dogs, you know, three to five weeks is the age at which dogs really begin to develop the first sets of abilities that let them be fearful of noises and a profound noise event at that time can be very problematic to them. So You know, I'm not saying it's only the genetic environment. You've got a genetic environment, you've got a rearing environment, you've got an exposure environment. I get all of that. But if you're shipping a young dog on a plane with those extreme noises, you've probably also got a neurodevelopmental environment that everybody's ignored in terms of how they learn to hear and distinguish things. And you may have done serious harm. And I would love to know if that's a risk period. You know, and we haven't done the appropriate studies, but we can that would tell us that. So there's a case where exposure can make a difference. The other types of exposure we see is we see dogs that are that are um, become truly phobic of certain noises when they're in a disaster. Um, And the classic one is dogs uh, who no longer can do smoke alarms or sirens if they were caught in a fire. Because the fact that the firemen (laughs) hacked their way through the place, got the dog out of the crate, cuddled the dog, put him inside their coat, climbed down the ladder and did all these heroic things. You know, the dogs don't walk away thinking, oh, I love firemen. They walk away thinking, I can't do that noise because the terror just overwhelms everything else. Now, the question in my mind becomes, and we've labeled those noise phobias for years, is that a 
special case form of PTSD because noise phobia itself may be a special case of a panic disorder. And if you've been in a traumatic situation, this may go beyond just the noise. And you may be in that special case of post-traumatic stress disorder. So if that's the case, it would be very important to know what the exposure was and when it occurred, because that may be something a little different if it's traumatic like that. But otherwise, um, exposure studies and people who expose their dogs, you know, they're not published. And what we've got is word of mouth where people think they should do it. And then you hear the clients that say, yeah, you know, because they'll come to me and they'll say, yeah, and I made sure this dog heard all sorts of sounds and he's still a basket case. Yes, because that you can't undo the genetic component. It's I've been arguing that and I'm, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that. And also you're telling, you know, you were talking and the word I'm glad that you brought up PTSD because the word that was just in neon in my head was trauma. So when you put a, you know, we know very well from humans that childhood trauma affects you in innumerable ways for the rest of your life. And puppies have to be in some way the same. Oh, they are. They absolutely are. We haven't done the studies and that actually is uh, one of the things I'm really hoping to do in the next decade. I've asked for funding for this in the past and have been wildly unsuccessful, but I think (laughs) we'll maybe become more enlightened. And I'm really hoping that we can begin to look at uh, raising trajectories and roles of trauma. Epigenetic effects are well-established in humans and laboratory rodents. There is absolutely no reason why those same patterns of effect don't happen in dogs and cats and other species. The regions of the brain involved are absolutely unchanged. And in fact, unfortunately, because we have commercial breeding in dogs, we are probably in in an absolutely perfect environment to test these because that's exactly when you would expect to see some some of these effects. And certainly I do see in my clinical population a number of commercially reared dogs who may have problems that are disproportionate to what you would have in a homebred dog, but we lack the data for that. We can't get people to collect the data for that. We need a national and international database that is the same as the Swedish database. The Swedish Kennel Club has one of the best databases in the world. And if you are going to own a dog in Sweden, and they they have non-purebred dogs. They're not that common, but they have them. Um, everybody has to be registered and licensed. And it allows them to do a lot of education and also collect information about the development of these problems and your background not a fancy database. They do fancy things with it because they've got hundreds of thousands of dogs. But we could easily do that. And, you know, I've tried to convince kennel clubs to do it in the past. And there are now tools that will facilitate that. And as I said, when we were talking before, before we started, you know, we've never had better molecular genetic techniques that are more accessible, faster to do and reasonably priced than we have right now. 
and it just seems to me that the time is long past to begin to collect the data for these things because trauma does matter. How we handle dogs does matter. How we rear puppies matters greatly. And yet veterinarians still only think, because this is what they've been taught, that you know you see puppies through the vaccine period and then you don't need to see them again for a year, a year and a half. This is when AHA created the behavioral guidelines for cats and dogs in 2015, and I chaired that panel. We all, all the specialists on the panel came down on the side of, no, you must see these dogs every three to four months for the first two years of their life, and you must screen them every single visit for behavioral concerns. So, so important. I Yes, so, so, so important. And I'm so happy that, you know, even though it might be moving at what feels like a glacial pace, oh <laughs> these <God>. changes <laughs> are happening. <laughs> they're there. They're happening on paper. I say that, uh-huh. you know, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're out there. AHA made the point of putting a couple of questionnaires that they could use. You know, we have a stage series of questionnaires that I teach students to use. They're very easy to use every visit, 30 to 60 seconds to fill out the first screening one. If it's positive, you need a longer screening one. That's going to take a few minutes. If that's positive, now you need a long questionnaire. So it's not a big investment in time. AHA put all of that on the website. And, you know, there are all these AHA certified practices all over North America. And at a meeting this year, I got the opportunity, 700 people in the audience, 700 vets got the opportunity to say to them, how many of you work at an AHA practice? Uh, You know, almost everybody in this audience raised their hand because they're all high tech. They do the best medicine possible. And I, Mm -hmm. how many of you read the guidelines? And, you know, some hands went down. And I said, how many of you actually know what's in those guidelines and know the answer to the question I'm about to ask? And I asked the question, how often did we tell you that you should be seeing puppies and kittens. Three people raised their hands. Oi. <laughs> oh, it's, you know, it's tough. And I, I have, you know, I have so much respect for veterinarians and I do feel like this is such an education problem. Um, and so I'm glad the guidelines are there. Yeah, but they're overwhelmed. I mean, this is the whole thing. Yes, they're expected to be everything, everything all the time. And, and you know, they're doing their, their damnedest, really, which is why it should be being, being delivered in school when it's easy to get. It makes it accessible. It gets you the mental training in the field to be able to go back. And it would push research forward because everything I've just said, you know, how many times have I already said, and we lack the data for that. <laughs> exactly. Those data. We could have those data, except very few people are doing this research. And, you know, those of us who are doing the research have to find money to do it because, believe it or not, I can't enter 20,000 questionnaires by myself into a database. (laughs) Well, why not? My gosh. That's that. Yes, that absolutely sounds like a nightmare to me. Um, So you had, you stated in your research that you, um, your team, has ascertained that about 50% of the population of pet dogs is affected by um, noise reactivity on some level. And that seems to me to be high for some breeds, but believable in others. And do you feel like it's 
skewed because the average is so much higher in a breed like Border Collies? Yeah, it, 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 can, it may be skewed because the average is so much higher, but studies of lifetime prevalence, in other words, over the course of your life, have you ever reacted, support the 50% rate. So um, it depends on what you're calling prevalence. Certainly in our studies, it's been that high. In a big survey study that just came out of Finland um, a few months ago, Hannes Lowy's group came up with um, 30 to 40%, closer to 40% for um, prevalence of noise reactivity, which they called sensitivity. Um, and it was the single most common problem that people mentioned across breeds. There were 197 breeds in his study and there were um, 14,000 dogs. Wow. And we are talking, you guys, for this to be the thing that people are bringing to the table and saying, my dog has a problem with this. Think about everything else. I mean, think about what we refer to as leash reactivity or, you know, dog directed aggression, you know, things like that, that as dog trainers, so it's not veterinary behaviors, but as dog trainers, that's one of the most common things that we get called in on. Um, And so think about how, you know, those numbers and how many of these dogs are actually affected and their quality of life is so affected by this noise reactivity. And I think it's more affected. I mean, I told you before we started recording that I feel like fear of noises is the most devastating affliction in my breed. And I I would put it above epilepsy just by sheer numbers. I would would too. And and I think the reason it's so devastating, and this was hinted at in the very first paper we published on this 20 years ago now, almost 20 years ago, where we just talked about comorbidity with separation anxiety. You know, we were we were only looking at a few things. And the shock was that if you reacted to uh, storms and other noises, because we separated out storms from other noises um, in a fearful way, your chances of, of also having comorbid separation anxiety were enormous and that the way we collected the data in that study allowed us to say that this wasn't a generalizable noise problem in other words we knew that there was a real difference in dogs who reacted to storms and fireworks and other noises and that's shown up that's been borne out by our later studies so they're not all one thing there are subsets of dogs that react to different things but if you react to storms you are much more likely to react to other noises than if you react just to guns or to fireworks, probably because and this is something that anybody who has looked at the psychological and psychiatric literature would understand, probably because the more unpredictable a stimulus is, the more likely you are to generalize responses to things that you may feel are like that because you have control over an unpredictable stimulus. So you get more worried instead of less worried. And storms are unpredictable in most parts of the world. And if you had that, your chances of reacting to every other noise class 
went up. And if you had, if you reacted to other noise classes, your chances of also having separation anxiety, um, what, having that that combo of comorbid conditions was um, four or five times more likely than you would have expected by chance alone. And that's a big deal because it strongly suggests that when you react to noises, something else happens. And that may happen at the neuromolecular level where you change something and now how you process other types of information is affected. It could happen at other levels. We don't know because we don't know what came first. Now, behavioral conditions in general tend to be comorbid, and you could argue, well, there are more reactive dogs and less reactive dogs, just like there are more and less reactive humans, and that's true, but, but how those patterns go together are actually not random. Um, and you are not just as likely to be reactive to another condition as a third condition. Um, there is a probability that goes with this that strongly suggests that something's changing in your brain and it's changing at a molecular level. And that's the type of stuff I think we need to be working on. And I think we need to be working on it in the neurodevelopmental sense. We need to, to see how these develop and what changes. And that really, the problem is it's a at least a two-year study waiting for dogs to grow up in high-risk lines and having ways to assess them, um, you know, and, and that's a team effort. It's a big study. But your comment that it affects every aspect of their life is an important one because the, the um, most recent paper we published on this, which came out, I don't know, in November or something, um, looked at noise reactivity and your ability to solve problems. And it mm -hmm. out in our big cognitive study, now we haven't included all the dogs. This was a subset of dogs that we had to look at quickly as because of some other things we were interested in doing. So we looked at this subset of non-reactive dogs and dogs who did react to noise. And we, we evaluated them by the questionnaire, we evaluated them by their response to a provocative recording that was custom made. And um, we evaluated their behavior on video. And then we evaluated them solving problems without any exposure to noise at all in a quiet background. In fact, the testing room came in at about 48 decibels, which is exceedingly quiet. Even if they hadn't been exposed to noise, the noise test came at the end. It didn't come at the beginning. So they'd had a good time. Their people were there. They were lar by and large happy to be there. Um, and these dogs didn't do as well on the test. They didn't persevere to the same extent. And they didn't move the same way. Wow. And it matters because I would not have realized how much they started and stopped if we hadn't had an accelerometer on them. And as it turns out, they don't move the same as normal dogs do in any direction. They do a lot of little starting and stopping. And that is so, so interesting. And I'm just, I'm constantly thinking about my own dogs and my client dogs and thinking about the problem, what I kind of 
you know, I do a lot of very high level training with them and they all seem to learn, even with me being the same trainer and having basically the same procedures for all of them, they do all learn a little bit differently. And I would say the dog that I have, who is probably the most, who has showed the most kind of early onset reactivity to noise um, versus my probably most fearful dog in my house is 11 years old and her, um, her noise reactivity started later in life when she was around seven. And I would have called her a genius problem solver her whole life prior to that. Um, and I might would just anecdotally say that that has changed a little bit since that time. Whereas my most kind of, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but just ever since I got him, he was reactive to noises in a pretty big way. Um, he, he has a hard time. Like he just, he has a hard time, a harder time learning in so many situations than I would expect him to have. Yeah. And the question becomes, um, is this one of focus? And in Hannes Lowy's, um, it's actually his graduate student's paper that was published, uh, uh, in Mila's most recent paper, um, she also looked at dogs that were in general, um, less focused or very impulsive and the two seem to go together. So if you're more impulsive, you're a little less focused and found out that that co-occurred in this um, online population of people who were just willing to fill out this questionnaire for their dog's behaviors. And, and our questions from our questionnaire are embedded in that questionnaire. So they've taken that same unbiased approach where they don't actually want anybody's opinion. They don't want you to rate your dog on a scale. They just want you to, they want to know if the dog does these sets of behaviors and what proportion of the time when exposed to something do they do them, which takes out a lot of the, you having to make a decision part of it. Um, yeah. And but it's good, but it works. But those dogs are like, the dog you just described where they may not function as well. Now, let me say something about older dogs who develop um, problematic and fearful reactions to noise. Seven is young for that to happen, but had you told me that dog was nine when it developed, I would have told you that um, starting at around eight or nine years of age, dogs hearing changes. And we do get a proportion of dogs who react to noises differently. And people often tell us they bark more and mm -hmm. bark more because they're not hearing correctly anymore. And they're asking you a question. They're not even sure if stuff is there sometimes. And you'll see this as they go through that phase where it becomes blurrier. And then when they're finally deaf, they're fine, but they don't necessarily go on to being completely deaf. So there are other complicating factors here, but we do see older age onset. And that's certainly is not something that factored into um, my early studies. You know, we didn't see those dogs when we went to dog shows because who goes to dog shows? Right. The younger dogs are at dog shows. Exactly it. Yeah. So I this question is a little bit um, out of order, but we're talking about it. So I have heard that, Yes, that eight to nine years of age is is very common time for their noise reactivity to change, and that it was believed that it was due to the way that they hear 
changing. So we actually know both things um, according to we have the data to support both things that that's that's a normal age of onset for that because the hearing changes around that time. Shifley, who's the human audiologist with whom we collaborate, is a professor at the University of Cincinnati and is um, a former Navy Marine mammal audiology guy. Um, And he has tested, along with his former graduate student, uh, uh, Chris Malinowski, who, with whom we also have collaborated, they've tested, I think by now, probably thousands of dogs. And that age of drop-off in acuity, when you begin to shear some of the, um, the hairs that are in your uh, inner ear, that is where that drop-off begins to occur. And we know where it occurs in humans quite well. We just, um, until they started to measure all these dogs, there weren't a lot of data in dogs. So you mentioned humans and um, that's so that's so often our life, right? Is that we have to extrapolate human research kind of into dogs as best as we possibly can. Um, do dogs process sound differently than people? They don't appear to (laughs) okay we don't know (laughs) i say this because the extent to which we've looked because skip and chris and i have actually looked and i don't actually know how much of this is published i think they've published much of it um they process sound differently to the extent that their ears are positioned a little differently and they accumulate sound in a different way. You know, no matter how hard we try, we're never going to be able to wiggle our ears to the extent that most dogs can to help us. Right. Yes. You know, focus in sound. But then in terms of the way they actually process all of the waves, that seems to be very similar, although there are species typical signatures. And that probably has to do more with positional structuring of all the audiology equipment and the range of sounds you would hear in that environment than anything else. In other words, you would not expect a whale to hear the same way that an above water mammal hears. But uh, for the types of things that have been looked at, they process sound very similarly to humans. Um, and so in one of the one of the studies that I read of yours, which you guys, I'm going to link um, Dr. Overall's website, and you guys can read everything that I got to read, um, is that basically you you are very interested in the genetic component of this behavioral concern. And you your exact words in the paper were that there appears to be a crisp phenotype, meaning there's a clearly observable phenotype um, everybody's interested in there being some kind of DNA test for this. Everybody wants eventually to, you know, to have Embark and all of those companies have a genetic screening um, availability. What are your thoughts on that? Is that a pie in the sky dream or, you know, do we just need to do the research? I think we need to do the research first. And then I think we could have a series of probabilistic tests. And the reason I say that is our research suggested that that there were probably at least six to eight genes involved. Mm -hmm. A couple of major gene effects. They may not be on the same set of chromosomes. In fact, I would bet they're not. Um, 
and it's a lot more complex than it looks. We have also um, looked at dopamine gene polymorphisms in some of the Norwegian breeds. And um, I think that what we are going to be able to say is if we were able to look, if we had a test for some of the polymorphisms, you know, do you have the big A, do you have the little A? Um, when you have two doses of one of the genes in the dopamine polymorphism, you are more at risk for having um, noise phobia in those breeds of dogs in the Norwegian population. And notice how qualified I just made that because right. those breeds in Norway are not the dogs we have here. And it's funny because I was just thinking again about the debate about whether or not um, neutering dogs uh, affects neoplasia. And there's some evidence that some neoplasias are affected and some aren't. And this isn't a mystery to the extent that, you know, could this happen? We've known for years that, that removal of estrogen or testosterone could affect all sorts of endocrine and neoplastic conditions because they have hormone receptors, you know. Um, right, right. It's pretty clear. Complex things. The way it shakes out is complex. But yeah. um, in looking, uh, and I was really, I'd forgotten this, but I, I read a line today where someone said, you know, in this breed in North America, we see the effect of the neutering on the cancer but in Scandinavia, they don't see it. And the reason they don't see it is it's not the same genetic group of dogs. Oh, man, that is fascinating. They may be the same breed, but they are not the same genetic group. You know this from Border Collies because you do performance. Absolutely. There are so many different types of Border Collies, too. We have one dog, Karen, from Japan, and we have another dog from England and the rest are from the United States. And there are clear differences to me oh, yeah. in these dogs. And it's not just how they look, although, you know, in many- No, it's not. In many breeds it is. You know, you look at Goldens and we so seldom see the champagne colored Goldens in the United States, but right. go to the Netherlands, you know, that's what's walking down the street. That's the popular color. Yes, absolutely. We were in, or I, we were in Finland, um, earlier let's see it was last year for the to watch world championships and certainly the pet dogs walking around yeah, in finland good. were fascinating yeah. to me <laughs> yeah, and I pictures yes. of those things people always think i'm stalking them and weird you know in when i see <laughs> no it was very interesting they were actually they were all purebred yeah. i didn't see any mixed breeds yeah. and then um and there was a wider range of purebred dogs than i would see here um, in the pet dog population. Yes, and that's true. And, um, you know, when you see these, these, these polymorphic populations, it makes it, it makes it very difficult to say anything definitive about one breed. And you always have to couch it in terms of where that breed comes from. But then there's the additional level of what that dog was intended to do. And in working border collies, noise reactivity, phobia, whatever you wish to call this, is very, very common. In benched border collies, the ones people, very disconcertingly for many people, sometimes call Barbie border collies. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm glad you said 
said it and not me, but it's a phrase I use all the time. (laughs) Those people's feelings get hurt, but they do think their dogs are beautiful and their dogs are beautiful. Um, But in those dogs who are not meant to work, um, the incidence of noise reactivity and phobia appears to be lower. And I've heard, I had read that um, and heard that, and I'm fascinated by it. I'm very, very interested. I'm very interested in what what allowed for this to become such a huge problem in the working population, and then what got rid of it? Like, what what genes are these genes attached to that, I mean, I'm fascinated. I have no idea. About that. And I, and let me just say, I think it's, it's like H.L. Mencken said about the Bible, important if true. You know, we don't actually have a lot of data on those um, benched border collies. Um, And I think we need it. And that study needs to be done. But what happens when you take a working dog breed and you have it be a confirmation dog is you relax the selection on working. So you're no longer selecting for working dog traits. That can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. And, you know, you can get horrible things happen where you've got all sorts of nasty sequelae that were selected against before. And because there were variants, covariance, matrix things, it could be a good thing where you get rid of some behavioral or physical conditions because they are no longer inadvertently being carried along by your selection for performance. And one of the things when we were doing our original genetic study that an old time breeder put in a letter to me, not email, it was a written letter that I still have, um, said that when many of the lines of dogs in the United States, the Border Collies were brought in from Wales, um, there were a couple of predominant lines, one especially, and many of the derivatives of these dogs were reactive to noise, and they were beaten to work through their noise so that they still work. And if that is true, and I have no reason to doubt this person, this is a very, very long, detailed letter written in beautiful penmanship with breed lines listed. Um, we may have selected for the ability to endure and to work against your best interests in a variance covariance matrix set by abusing dogs. And if that's true, it's an extraordinarily sad story. It's something that I didn't know you had that letter, and it's something I've argued for a long time, that that's actually what's going on, is that these dogs... You know, this industry we can't really recover. Right. But if... (laughs) As as well as, um, you know, most of the the shepherds and the ranchers don't believe that what they're doing is abusive or wrong or, you know, anything other than just how you train a working dog. Right. So where, how would you even get the data? (laughs) You know, this is an ongoing, you know, this is an ongoing issue with all working dogs and you get veterinary behaviorists or people who are training to be veterinary behaviorists watching working dogs and they'll talk to the working dog people and the working dog trainers very often want your, your help. I mean, I, I collaborate with huge numbers of these people and some of these people are my best friends. 
and I've stood there and I've heard other people do it. And I've seen videos of other people do it where you stand there and you say, just let him do it. Don't coerce him. And they say, I'm not coercing him. Right. We believe that. And, and yeah. definition of coercion doesn't include letting them do what they're doing. Right. And this is one of the reasons, and I know it's annoying that we always have to start with terminology, but this is one of the reasons we have to, because we don't all mean the same things by these words. And if there's been one change in the 25 years I've been in this field, or now closer to 30 years I've been in this field, um, that's for the, the good is now everybody starts with defining things. You know, for so long, I was just alone in the wilderness saying, I have no idea what you're talking about because it may not be what I'm saying. And now at least people realize we do have this communication issue, but it's spotty, you know? So when you're standing there with, with somebody on a ranch and you say, you know, don't pull on the lead. I'm not pulling on the lead. Well, in my book, you're pulling on the lead. Completely, completely. And, you know, that's why I opened this with, asking you to define what we're talking about because it's a consistent problem um yes. i think it's it's a you know and even you've said some words that might mean something for instance the word sensitivity yes. has a different meaning in audiology than it does in psychology than it does in veterinary behavior right so it's it's this we all have to get on the same page about all of these words and even if we don't get on the same page and you know i edit the journal in the field so i'm really sensitive to the fact that people defend their terms and i think that's fine you know, as much as I want a uniform and unified terminology, I realize that people are wedded to some of the things they've created the same way I'm wedded to some of the things I've created, and I get that. So my only way of ethically dealing with this was to say to people, you can pretty much call it anything you want as long as you can show me an example of it, and you can define it. Yes. And that's what I do when I'm talking to colleagues as well Is I'll just say, hey, can you just stop and tell me exactly what that means for you? And then, you know, and then we go forward. Um, Karen, I want to be. We can communicate. Sorry. No, I'm sorry. We can. That's what it's for. <laughs> right. We are able to talk. We're a verbal species. So let's, you know, figure out um, what we're all talking about. So I want to be respectful of your time. So I've got a couple of things that I want to ask, um, which is that, you know, one, one little piece, and then I've got kind of two questions about acquiring a puppy, but one little piece is that I have really observed, you know, your research look tends to look at these very loud noises, like maybe fireworks and gunshots. Um, and it's not uncommon for me to observe particularly border collies who seem to not be able to cope with any level of noise. Um, they can't compete indoors, for instance, because it's just an acoustic nightmare for yes. them versus outside. They're fine. Do you feel like this is that um, the noise event or something has kind of generalized and snowballed into a more general anxiety problem? Um, or or can we call that noise phobia, too? I, th I think we could call it noise phobia and certainly noise reactivity also. But I also know that stimulus response generalization occurs in noises. The problem is, I don't know if these dogs started out by reacting profoundly to storms and 
guns, fireworks. The reason people ask about those three very loud categories, and not all guns sound the same, and not all storms are the same, and not all firework displays are the same, but everybody can recognize them. And, you know, they fall into, if not all being identical, there's a cluster of characteristic sounds for each of those. And that's not true in the generalizable world. But there may be, and this is perhaps something that should be looked at, um, I see a lot of those patients, too, who can't go in an arena. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you'd best hope all your agility trials are outdoors because they can't do them seasonally indoors. Because of that sort of echo chamber quality weirdness of the, and it doesn't matter if there are loads of dogs in there, which just seem to get louder or nobody in there, in which case the echo in the performance space seems even weirder to the dogs. But I think that's exceedingly important. And, you know, this is why in our questionnaire, we leave, we leave space for clients to tell us about that. But when you get to clients telling you about the other sounds to which their dogs react, um, and I'll give you my most extreme example of stimulus response generalization that we know started with storms in this one patient. The, um, you know how when you go to preheat an electric oven, um, mm-hmm. we didn't have an electric oven until recently, so I had no idea what this client was actually talking about until- <laughs> Like, um, I know this occurs, but I really have no sense of what it sounds like. But you just, you know, you say, I need it to be 350. It's not a gas oven. It doesn't do it that way. But, you know, the electric timer automatically goes on. And then when it's done, it reaches 350, it dings. And it's just a yep. ding. That's it. I mean, it doesn't ring and ring and ring. And... I have a patient for whom that became a paralytic event. Which means they can't cook food in the oven or the microwave. Right. A lot of the dogs that I am aware of are afraid of beeping, kitchen beeping type of noises for sure. The beeping, you know, the the backing up beeping that now goes with uh, trucks and now many cars. Yes. I had one dog who was becoming, and it was a border collie, very, very aggressive to the client. And the dog had both noise, you know, he had noise profound storm reactions. I mean, this was a truly noise phobic border collie. And he also had impulse control aggression. And the impulse control aggression was wonderfully controlled. And they call me and they send me a video and I, you know, they're emailing me and they're upset and I'm looking at the video and I watch what the guy does to the dog to put the lead on and the dog is clearly losing his mind. Finally, I say to them, I need to see you. I just, I need to see, you know, we need a re-exam. The dog's in front of me. The dog's very happy to see me. The dog's doing brilliantly. These people haven't had problems in a long time. Lovely, lovely people. And I said, and I need for you to bring the lead. Don't bring the dog in on the lead. We'll, you know, close the gates, close the fences, everything. The dog will just walk into the house. Unless you've looped something over his neck, for God's sakes, don't put him on the lead. You know, we'll just get him indoors that way. And and I said, okay, now after everybody's calm, let me see you leash the dog. And the guy takes the lead out of the inside of his jacket. The dog doesn't react to it at all. I said, could you do me a favor and just show it to the dog? And the dog doesn't react to it at all. 
And I said, okay, interesting. Give the dog a treat, ask the dog to sit, does that. I said, okay, now go to put it on the dog. And the, dog, the guy goes to slip the snap and the dog loses his mind. Uh, oh my goodness. And had the dog not been in front of me, because I couldn't see that on the video, I couldn't hear it. And I don't hear that well. So the very fact that I heard this is soft, the dog probably heard it as, as hugely loud, but it was simply that it was the kind that you ratchet down the little snap and it, and that ratcheting down with the little spring load was mm -hmm. enough. So, you know, we need a, um, an exceedingly long list of these things and most dogs will not react to them, but I think we need that survey. Yeah, because that's what I'm seeing that is that tends to be so debilitating. So often we can, you know, use something like cilio or something for events, right? But then you've got General these day-to-day -day noises. Yeah, you know the people who say they can't they can't uh, shuffle paper on their desk. Yes, something yeah. weird like they open a CD case. Um, you know, it's not all fire alarms and smoke alarms and guns and storms and fireworks, but those were the original things in the literature that it's something that everybody can agree on. And if you're going to do a licensing study for a drug, you need something everybody can agree on, which is why they ended up choosing fireworks, you know? So, yeah, um, yeah. but I do think it's long since past time we need that survey. And that's the type of survey I'd love to be involved in if a breed club was willing to help with it. Because um, trust me, people know what their dogs react to. If you give them the chance to tell you, and I don't want to know what you think about it or why you think, I, I just want to know, give me a list of the sounds your dog finds distressing. You'd be surprised at what people will tell you. Well, certainly. And I think, you know, I, I'm going to be reaching out to my community. I feel like this really needs to be done. And I, I kind of lied. I have, I have three more questions for you, but one, one is to just basically, is there hope? This seems like such a tough, tough problem to work through. So would you talk a little bit about, obviously you can't give us a treatment plan here, but treatment and prognosis and how maybe how common regression is and just what you're seeing. Okay. Regression is very common. So let's start with the bad news. Okay. I don't think we ever fix this. I think that um, there is a learned component, and I also think there's uh, a neuromolecular miswiring component that's driven by liability genes. And I do think these are liability genes. And in fact, you know, if you've got a really, really badly storm phobic dog and he doesn't react to anything else, move to Oregon. You know, they have very Yes, <laughs> types of storms, and it's a place to live. So, you know, um, that's what I mean by liability genes. Those dogs have a different genetic set of, of um, factors, and that pathology may be a little different at the neuromolecular level. So the complexity is both the fascination and it's the tough part. But um, because of liability genes, and the effects, the variable effects of the environment, recidivism is common. So you cannot expect that dogs will go through their life and that this response also might not change, especially since there's an audiological component to it. So as your hearing changes, 
you may get there. Um, in our study, because of the way we did it, we tended to see dogs who were, um, there were older dogs, but they were largely younger and they were pretty profoundly affected when they were affected. So it looked like that, you know, if you were affected, you were gonna be affected by two years and, and we didn't follow them through time, but the older dogs weren't worse in scores than the younger dogs. In the study Lowy's group just did, it seems like they do worsen with time, which is what you'd expect with a behavioral condition due to exposure. So you, if you keep being exposed and not treated, you will worsen. The good news is that even if we did no more research, we can at least intervene at some level and we have effective treatments for the catastrophic noise reactivity. For the less than catastrophic noise reactivity, the kind you're worried about, the day-to-day -day stuff, which you and I both think is catastrophic to their quality of life, but um, yes. when we talk about catastrophic, we're talking about incidents, you know, like storms and gunshots and those types of things. Um, the treatment becomes more complex, but I now treat these dogs with daily anti-anxiety medication and it raises, it appears, my hypothesis is, and it appears clinically to be doing this, although I can't promise this is how this is working. I think it raises the threshold for the reactions to noise. And then when they do seem to be uncomfortable in their skin, we can um, use other medications and interventions to help with the situational anxiety. But um, I now tell people that if they've got these dogs where everything bothers them, we can't just treat the noise. We are going to treat that like it's a global anxiety. And uh, I tell them the same thing I tell all of my clients, no matter what the diagnosis is. Um, these are time penetrant conditions. They get worse with time if left untreated. Neurodevelopment matters, aging matters, things change. Um, we may get the dog to the extent with medication and behavioral treatment that you would never know the dog had a problem. If at that point you wish to wean the dog from the meds, you're welcome to do so. But the vast majority of my clients choose not to because they don't need to know whether the dog doesn't need the medication as long as the medication is having no adverse effects and the dog is happy. They're so worried about provoking a worsening of the dog's condition that the vast majority of my clients, including the people who loathe the concept of drugs, keep their dogs on medication for 15 or 16 years with no untoward events. So the dogs, so they don't have to worry that they will trigger a bad event in their dog's life. I mean, I'm all about it. I, <laughs> I am definitely, and it's... This I think it's we're we're getting better in the performance dog world as far as accepting that medication can improve yeah. quality of life in a lot of these dogs. But it's why we know sure. nothing about weaning because no one does it. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, all, and it's kind of like you know, right? If you don't have to, you don't have to, and we move on um, with our lives. And yeah, just keep them on drugs. Um, and how much of this is dogs who don't need medication? Well, if you're doing that, I can guarantee you there are some dogs in that population who don't need medication for the rest of their life. The problem is I'm not real good at telling you who those are. And, you know, until we have tests that give us probability, you know, 
I just don't, I don't have that crystal ball and, and what I can't yeah. stand is suffering. So, so that's the way I look at it. So um, optimistically, I think we can learn more. The good news is people are now paying attention to this. If we can get people to realize that this is affecting every single aspect of their life, I think people will begin to reinvest in the genetic studies. And I think we will have some answers that can help guide people to early treatment and intervention. And that's where we have to go. Um, we can make same breeding decisions, but early treatment and intervention may be the way to go. Given some of the results on um, baby rodents, where they seem to develop a different set of neural connections if they're treated with anti-anxiety drugs very, very shortly after birth, um, we may be missing the boat here. We may be able to rewire brains with drugs if we're willing to treat dogs that we knew might be at risk or are affected uh, when they're just a few weeks to a few months of age. Ooh, that's, that's fascinating and, too. And I could ask a million questions about that. Yeah, <laughs> that's true, but that's where I would see the benefit of the genetic testing because then I would, if I, you know, if I ended up with positive tests, I would say, okay, our next step is let's see if we can affect this. We know that they have a risk of being affected. Now let's do the study and see what happens. And so the final kind of two things that I know everybody is, is wondering is number one, what you've mentioned a few times, we can make smart breeding decisions. What are those decisions? What do you think breeders, especially of these hugely affected breeds, you mentioned to me off air that you wouldn't be surprised if 80 to 85% of border collies are at risk or affected. Um, what, what are those smart breeding decisions that breeders can be making um, before they actually produce the puppies? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And I do think our data suggest if you ramp it up, that um, 80 to 85% in North America of the working border collies may be affected. And if that's true, you're going to begin to run out of breeding options. But you need to know what your breeding options are. And one of the things that always impresses me when I'm in Scandinavia, and I'm always invited to talk to a kennel club group somewhere, is the extent to which they keep these fabulous records and they invest in health surveys. Most breed clubs invest in health surveys, but they don't invest in behavioral health surveys. And what I really wish breed clubs would do is partner with somebody like me and repeatedly every single year do some kind of a behavioral health survey so that you know how many of these dogs are affected. And then let's start genotyping them. Let's start looking at the loci we know we've identified risk for, and let's see how polymorphic they are. You know, the lovely thing about the four breeds of dogs in Norway that we were able to look at is those people can now go back. And if they would like to phenotype their dogs and then genotype them for that dopamine D2 gene loci um, polymorphism, they can certainly do so, and they know that if they have a homozygote, they're going to be more at risk. So they may not want to breed to a homozygote, and they may, unless they're breeding 
you know, two homozygotes of completely on the opposite spectrum. And then everybody's going to carry this, the allele that we're worried about, but now you can backbreed and you can increase the number of dogs that don't have that allele. The greater the percentage of affected animals in your population, the less that technique works for you because you're running out of things to breed to. Oh, certainly. And I feel like, you know, obviously there's such a huge population of dogs that are affected that we couldn't just call them all from the breeding population. That's not, you know, a breed, the breed would cease to exist. No, Um, but you can rank them. You can look at how they are using the types of tools we use. And you can say that some dogs shouldn't be in the breeding population. Some dogs should. You can certainly bank the semen of males. And you can do this sanely in a way that you are not um, going to cause inbreeding problems. But to do that, you need a good database. And oddly enough, there are only two places in dogdom that have that database. One is the Swedish Kennel Club, who will give you estimated breeding values for everything, including noise reactivity for every single test mating you want to do on paper. My next dog is coming from Sweden. Karen, you just decided. (laughs) The the other place that has that ability, and it's for working dogs, but it's an ability that everybody should take on, and I would love to see the American Kennel Club and other kennel clubs jump on board, is the International Working Dog Breeding Association has something called the International Working Dog Registry, which is the brainchild of Eldon Layton. And um, so it's largely service dogs that are entered into it now, but it's the same type of, of uh, program that the Swedish Kennel Club uses. And we can calculate estimated, the program does it for you that he wrote, estimated breeding values for anything you want to collect the data for. And you could look at the test meetings, but everybody you're looking at has got to be a member of that database. And we just haven't taken that kind of organized approach to to genetics in this country. We haven't. And I think, you know, there's a whole other podcast in there somewhere (laughs) about that. Um, And so I think the last thing that everybody's really wondering is um, if you're looking at a litter of puppies, let's say they're under eight weeks or, you know, in the like six to eight week range, can you actually observe um, the noise reactivity that young on on enough of a level that you might be able to, I don't know, pick pick the least reactive puppy? Yes, whether it means something later in life, um, we, don't we don't know. know. But that three-week okay. period where they begin to develop odd reactions to noises, it's the first time that that part of the cortex is sufficiently mature that they can do that. And if you um, see a dog who is beginning to react inappropriately, and I know this is going to sound heretical, I would actually treat it. And I know that's that's what I'm hearing. That's what I'm hearing from you is that my dog, who's the most reactive, he was right away. And I probably should have. Yeah, but we do things a little differently now. You know, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been called a lot of horrible names for treating dogs so early but as I said everything in my life 
has been about stopping what I think is the most profound suffering in the that it exists and it's mental suffering and everything in my life has been about sparing dogs things that they don't have to experience and cats and horses and everything and uh and that's all there is for me well i think that's a really fantastic place to end and i want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your information can you let my listeners know if they want to know more um where they can find you Sure, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> first of all, thank you for inviting me. I, I never, I try never to pass up an opportunity to uh, get people interested in some of the things I'm interested in. And I'm always interested in educated audiences like yours where people are really de devoted to their dogs. And of course, my phone goes off because I neglected to turn it off. Um, <laughs> you can certainly reach me. The easiest way to reach me, um, I have a number of email addresses. I'll give you two, but if you also go to the website, uh, and you're going to link the website, so they'll be able to reach me through. Yes, that. I will. They're easy addresses. One is overall.karen at gmail.com, and they're welcome to email me. And you can reach me at Atlantic Veterinary College at UPEI, and that's just koverall at upei.ca for Canada. So, um, you know, people are welcome to reach out and I do answer all my emails, just not at exactly the same second everybody wishes I did. <laughs> I understand that <laughs> for sure. All right, Karen, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Well, you were great. And I'm just so glad you're so passionate about this. Passion carries people very far. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.